Good evening. No more favored nation status for Russia as attacks in Ukraine spread, and the United Nations argues about alleged Ukrainian-U.S. biowarfare, the danger of a no-fly zone, and Smollett is sentenced. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, March 11, 2022. The top story, as it's been for more than two weeks, is the war between Russia and Ukraine. Today, Russia widened its offensive in Ukraine, striking airfields in the West an area of the country largely spared fighting until now. Meanwhile, an armored column stalled for over a week outside Kiev appeared to have spread out near the capital, possibly in preparation for an assault. In related news, the United States and its allies moved to further isolate and sanction the Kremlin. President Joe Biden announced a sharp downgrade of Russia's trade status with the United States while banning of imports, uh, banning the imports of signature Russian products like seafood, alcohol and diamonds. Each of our nations is going to take steps to deny most favored nation status to Russia. A most favored nation status designation means two countries have agreed to trade with each other under the best possible terms. Low tariffs, few barriers of trade, and the highest possible imports allowed. In the United States, we call this permanent normal trade relations, PNTR, but it's the same thing. Revoking PNTR for Russia is going to make it harder for Russia to do business with the United States and doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow to the Russian economy. It's already suffering very badly from our sanctions. We're also taking a further step of banning imports of goods from several signature sectors of the Russian economy, including seafoods, vodka and diamonds. And we're going to continue to squeeze Putin. The G7 will seek to deny Russia the ability to borrow from leading multinational institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The G7 is also stepping up pressure on corrupt Russian billionaires. We're adding new names to the list of oligarchs and their families that we're targeting. And we're increasing coordination among the G7 countries to target and capture their ill-begotten gains. They support Putin. They steal from the Russian people. And they seek to hide their money in our countries. They're part of a, that kleptocracy that exists in Moscow. And they must share in the pain of these sanctions. And that is President Joe Biden. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said today that Ukraine had reached a strategic turning point in the conflict with Russia. In the besieged southern, meanwhile, even even as the attacks continue, in the besieged southern city of Mariupol, the city council there said at least 1,582 civilians have been killed as a result of Russian shelling and a 12-day blockade that's left hundreds of thousands trapped with no food, water, heat, or power. And a new effort to evacuate civilians along a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol appeared to have failed. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Poland yesterday to shore up relations after a misfired attempt to provide Polish-Soviet-era fighter jets to Ukraine fell through over fears of drawing the West directly into the war. Harris embraced calls for an international war crimes investigation of Russia, citing the atrocities of bombing civilians. Pregnant women going for health care? Being injured by, I don't know, a missile, a bomb? In an unprovoked, unjustified war, where a powerful country is trying to take over another country, violate its sovereignty, its territorial integrity, for the sake of what? Nothing that is justified or provoked? 
Absolutely there should be an investigation. And we should all be watching. And I have no question the eyes of the world are on this war and what Russia has done in terms of this aggression and these atrocities. I have no doubt. Hey, yesterday's news conference with Harris and Polish President Andrzej Duda sought to brush aside differences on the fighter jets issue. Harris said, I want to be very clear. The United States and Poland are united in what we have done and are prepared to do to help Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. Full stop. And the United Nations here in New York said today it had no evidence Ukraine had a biological weapons program. Russia called the meeting of the 15-member U.N. Security Council to reassert that Ukraine ran biological weapons laboratories with the United States Defense Department's support. We convene, convene the meeting today because, uh, as Russia is conducting a special military operation in, in Ukraine, we discovered a truly shocking fact of emergency cleanup by the Kiev regime of the traces of a military biological program which is being implemented by Kiev with support by the United States Ministry of Defense. Our Ministry of Defense, Russian Ministry of Defense, now has documents which confirms uh, that on the territory of Ukraine there was a network consisting of at least 30 biological laboratories in which very dangerous biological experiments are being conducted, aimed at strengthening the pathogenic qualities of the plague, anthrax, tularemia, cholera and other lethal diseases using synthetic biology. This work is being done and funded and supervised by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency of the United States. The results of this work were being sent to military biological centers in the United States. The goal is to study the possibility of spreading particularly dangerous infections using migratory birds. Yeah, there was another project where the vector of the potential agents of biological weapon, bats, were considered. Amongst priority areas for study, they include the bacterial and viral pathogens that could spread from bats to people, such as uh, plague, leptospirosis, and as well as filoviruses and coronaviruses. An ambassador to the United Nations, Vasily Nebentia, through a translator. The reference to bats brings to mind research findings. The coronavirus pandemic began when viruses jumped from bats to humans at a market in Wuhan, China, and the resulting unproven conspiracy theories that either China or the United States were somehow behind the pandemic. The United Nations High Representative for Disarmament Affairs, Izumi Nakamitsu, denied knowledge of any biological weapons program in Ukraine. The United Nations is not aware of any biological weapons programs. Assessing compliance with its obligations is a task for its states' parties. Documents allegedly captured by Russian forces seem to indicate biological laboratories run by Ukraine were ordered to destroy stocks of dangerous pathogens. Under a 2005 agreement, the Pentagon, supported by the World Health Organization, has assisted several Ukrainian public health laboratories with improving the security of dangerous pathogens and technology used to research them. The U.S. envoy to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said Washington was deeply concerned that Russia was angling for a potential false flag effort to cover up its own use of biological or chemical weapons in Ukraine. Ukraine does not have a biological weapons program. 
There are no Ukrainian biological weapons laboratories supported by the United States, not near Russia's border or anywhere. So here are the facts. Ukraine owns and operates its own public health laboratory infrastructure. These facilities make it possible to detect and diagnose diseases like COVID-19, which benefit us all. The United States has assisted Ukraine to do this safely and securely. This is work that has been done proudly, clearly, and out in the open. This work has everything to do with protecting the health of people. It has absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing to do with biological weapons. In fact, it is Russia that has long maintained a biological weapon program in violation of international law. And we're deeply concerned that Russia's calling for this meeting is a potential false flag effort in action. Exactly the kind we have been warning about, including from Secretary Blinken here in the Security Council last month. Russia has a track record of falsely accusing other countries of the very violations that Russia itself is perpetrating. And given that, and consistent with our previous statements, we have serious concerns that Russia may be planning to use chemical or biological agents against the Ukrainian people. Linda Greenfield-Thomas, and she was uh, giving the U.S. response to the um, allegations that uh, there were uh, some sort of untoward activity with biological facilities uh, run by the United States or funded by the United States in Ukraine. Responding to Thomas Greenfield's statement, Russian U.N. Ambassador Nebensha recalled that then U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell made a uh, made a testimony before the uh, Security Council in 2003 when he presented what Washington claimed was proof that Iraq was hiding banned weapons of mass destruction. The United States used the assertion, which turned out to be false, to justify its 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. Answering the Russian envoy, Thomas Greenfield said, I know that you expect me to respond, but we're not going to give any more airtime to the lies that you're hearing today. Today. Responding to questions from the Reuters news agency, the World Health Organization said in an email today it has collaborated with Ukrainian public health labs for several years to promote security practices that help prevent accidental or deliberate releases of pathogens. The UN agency went on to state in the email, as part of this work, WHO has strongly recommended to the Ministry of Health in Ukraine and other responsible bodies to destroy high threat pathogens to prevent any potential spills. The WHO would not say when it had made the recommendations, nor did it provide specifics about the kinds of pathogens or toxins housed in Ukraine's laboratories. The agency also didn't answer questions about whether its recommendations were followed. And you may remember a WBAI news report earlier this week that an angry Russian president, Vladimir Putin, directly responded to calls from some Republicans and others in the United States for a no-fly zone over Ukraine to prevent Russian jets from supporting the ground fighting. Putin says he's sure the West is not serious about directly joining the fight. It is introduced. If there is uh, external aggression, if there is any military threat, hopefully it will not happen despite some statements made by the Western officials. Now we hear that the no-fly zone should be introduced above the territory of Ukraine. It is impossible to do above the territory of Ukraine. 
It can only be done from some adjacent countries, but any steps in this regard will be seen by us as participation in the armed conflict by the country from where the threat will be posed to our security. That very second, we will see this country as the participant of a military conflict, and we won't care, member of which alliance or bloc they will be. I apologize for saying member. I hope there is understanding of that, and uh, it won't come to that. And as President Vladimir Putin, peace activists say a no-fly zone would mean that the United States Air Force would essentially become the Ukrainian Air Force, fighting alongside Ukrainian ground forces against Russia, and that shooting down Russian planes and bombing Russian anti-aircraft sites would greatly increase the risks of escalation, up to and including a nuclear confrontation. A research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statescraft, uh, Bill Hartung, is often a visitor here at WBAI. He joins us live. Hello, Bill Hartung. Yes, hello. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, you heard what the uh, president of Russia had to say and what some of these Republicans and others who said who have been advocating this no-fly zone. Uh, what is a no-fly zone? How would it be enforced? And, and why is it a sort of madness? Understandably, a lot of people want to stop the killing that they're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, and a no-fly zone sounds sort of, you know, like, well, you just – Tell them not to fly there. They're going to listen to you. But in fact, it's an act of war because it means taking out anti-aircraft sites, possibly even inside Russia. It means shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine. Uh, it means military conflict between two nuclear armed powers. Uh, and anytime you have that, there's always the risk of it escalating to the nuclear level. So, um, you know, however people may feel about helping Ukraine. Uh, this is not the way to do it. Right. What is a no-fly zone? What would that entail? Where have we used them before? I know some of, we might know, but some of the listeners might not know. How are, have they been implemented by the United States in the past and where? Well, they've done them in Iraq. Uh, they've done them in Libya. But those are very different situations. First of all, they weren't going to war with a nuclear-armed country. Uh, second of all, neither of those countries had the kind of anti-aircraft or the kind of air force that Russia has. So it's a, it's a completely different proposition uh, militarily. And I think some people, kind of their sense is, well, we did it before. Why can't we do it again? And the reason we can't do it again is because this is a completely different and more dangerous situation. Do people just forget about the fact that Russia is a nuclear-armed state and uh, think that it's uh, devolved into just another uh, second-rate power and uh, the U.S. can just push it around? Or do they feel that uh, maybe nobody really would use nuclear weapons? I haven't seen any polls on this, but there's significant popular support for doing something like this. Members of Congress have been hearing from constituents and so forth. So I think the people who are saying that probably – either haven't thought about Russia's nuclear weapons, think this wouldn't trigger their use. Uh, you know, some of the pundits and politicians who advocate it acknowledge that it's a calculated risk, acknowledge that it could lead to a nuclear confrontation, but basically say it's a risk they're willing to take. Um, so uh, that's sort of where it stands. There's been, uh, you know, a lot of analysts – uh, and experts on the other side signed letters against this. And, um, of course, the Biden administration has said it will not do it. 
there's not strong support in Congress. Even Marco Rubio, a uh, Republican, has said this would be tantamount to starting World War III. So I, I think the line can be held. But the longer the conflict goes on without a negotiated resolution, uh, there's going to be pressure on President Biden to do something, do something more than these amazing sanctions that are already in place, do something more than arming the Ukrainians. And at that point, maybe this kind of demand is elevated or maybe it just becomes a kind of a tool in pushing Biden uh, to do riskier things. Uh, relative to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So just to start wrapping up, that means that we might see other risky ideas. This might not be the end of risky harebrained schemes, to use that terminology. Well, I think, you know, things like transferring fighter aircraft to Ukraine, I think, you know, pose a risk of escalation. Uh, The Pentagon has decided for the moment they don't think that should be done. And they've also said, the uh, Ukrainians aren't using a lot of the Air Force that they already have, so that may be held off. But, you know, if Russia were to occupy Ukraine and there was a long-term insurgency like happened in Afghanistan, that would pose all kinds of risks because the U.S. could be viewed as a co-combatant in a conflict. So there's a lot of ideas floating around that would go, you know, considerably beyond where we are now uh, and raise the risk. So. Uh, I think there's going to have to be a lot of discussion about that before any of those things are allowed to happen. Last point, uh, President Putin brought up uh, the fact that he had put his nuclear weapons on high alert, which the U.S. says isn't even in the rule book, so they don't know what it meant, and so the U.S. did not respond. Was that dangerous talk to? Well, yes. I mean, I think anytime the head of a nuclear-armed state threatens the head of another nuclear-armed state, that, that poses a risk in and of itself because you don't want any miscalculation as to what the other side means, what the other side is willing to do. Um, I think if the Biden administration is careful, uh, I don't think the risk of a nuclear exchange is, is large. It's a, it's a low probability, but it should be a zero probability. So I, I think we have to be very careful how we proceed I can agree wholeheartedly with that. Thank you, Bill Hartung, for joining us on WBAI. Bill Hartung is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you for joining us. And in Haiti, one journalist was killed and others injured after police opened fire on a demonstration of factory workers in Port-au-Prince demanding living wages. That was on Monday. Haiti's government announced a minimum wage increase of up to 54 percent following weeks of demonstrations amid soaring inflation. But striking garment workers said that even with the pay raise, their salaries still just half or less uh, or less of the roughly $15 per day they are demanding. There were protests here in New York in support. And we have a clip of the chanting. And that was today in New York. Garment workers in Haiti make clothes and sweatshop conditions for major U.S. brands, including Gap, Walmart and Target and for Canada's Gildan Activewear. And the uh, Bank of America has apologized to the film director, Ryan Coogler, after he was assumed to be a bank robber and briefly handcuffed by the police while trying to withdraw money from a branch in Atlanta in January. Hey, sir. Let me a favor, man. 
Come this way. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Put your hand behind your back. Put your hand back. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. Is there any reason y'all doing this, bro? What's going on, my man? Trying to put money on my own. Every time I make a withdrawal to pay her, you know, because it's a, a large amount, she works a lot. Yeah. You know, if I if I don't if I don't write down on a note how much I went out, and then I don't want it ran through the money counter right there at the desk, the whole bank ends up looking at me because I just hear money going through the money through the account, and I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe getting money out like that. He was requiring money to. Uh be given to him in a way that wouldn't attract the attention of everybody around him. Kugler is best known for directing Black Panther. He handed the teller a withdrawal slip on January 7th asking for $10,000 with a note on the back asking her to be discreet when handling him the cash. That's according to the police report. The teller received an alert notification from Kugler's account and quickly advised her manager that he was trying to rob the bank branch in the Buckhead section of Atlanta. The officers said they detained the driver and passenger and placed them in a patrol car. They then removed Kugler from the bank in handcuffs and determined that he was not a bank robber. The police confirmed the episode resulted from a mistake by Bank of America and that Kugler was never in the wrong. They said in the report, which adds that Kugler was immediately taken out of handcuffs and the other two who were arrested with him were taken out of the patrol car. All three were given an explanation of the incident as well as an apology for the mistake by the Bank of America. And in, I guess, a related story, a judge sentenced Jussie Smollett, the actor, to 150 days uh, yesterday, branding the black and gay actor a narcissistic charlatan for allegedly staging a hate crime against himself to grab the limelight while the nation struggled with wrenching issues of racial injustice. He's convicted of a class four felony. It's presumptively probationable, but we have some real serious aggravating factors here. Your premeditation, which I've described, the pain you've caused to real victims of hate crimes, which I have described. The damage you've done to the city of Chicago, I've heard. It's been, it's been talked about. I'm mindful of the city's request for restitution. And I, I, if I'm going to fashion that, uh, consider that request, I have to fashion the sentence accordingly. I'm sentencing you to 30 months felony probation, and the probation is going to be to this court. You will pay restitution to the city of Chicago the amount of $120,106. You are fined $25,000, which is the maximum fine. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. Smollett responded by defiantly maintaining his innocence and suggesting he could be killed in jail. I am not suicidal. I am innocent and I am not suicidal. If I did this, then it means that I stuck my fist in the fears of black Americans in this country for over 400 years and the fears of the LGBTQ community. Your Honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this and I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself. And you must all know that. I am not suicidal. I am not suicidal and I am innocent. I could have said that I was guilty a long time ago. The Smollett family and their attorney also spoke out in support. He's in jail for five months. That is unacceptable for being attacked. It is not, it is not his fault that folks are not going to believe survivors anymore. He is a survivor and he has been completely mistreated and this, is, this has to stop.
And it was a complete frame-up. And we have to stop young black men from being abducted into the prison system. You know it. And you guys got to do more investigative reporting, more investigation, okay? And if there's anyone that has any doubts about the double standard that exists in the criminal justice system, I'm not saying all judges. There are a lot of progressive judges out here in Cook County, and I'm very proud of that fact. But if there's anyone that has any doubts, uh, today should be a reflection of that. This sentence was a disparate treatment towards a black man, and that's my personal opinion. Smollett faced up to three years in prison for each of the five felony counts of disorderly conduct, the charge filed for lying to police of which he was convicted. He was acquitted on a sixth count. But because Smollett doesn't have an extensive criminal history and the conviction is for low-level nonviolent crime, experts didn't expect him to be sent to prison. Thursday's sentencing, which is subject to appeal, is the latest chapter in a criminal case that made international headlines when Smollett reported to police that two men wearing ski masks beat him, hurled racial and homophobic slurs at him on a dark Chicago street and then ran off. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 11th, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>